Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. You know, how did you go broke gradually and then all at once? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how mental illness is. I mean, with bipolar disorder, because as you mentioned, Uh, there was this grandiosity. There was this sense of invincibility. The analogy I always use is Bradley Cooper in Limitless, where basically, you know, I took this pill and it's like, the quote is like, I was blind, but now I can see. Learning new languages. I was making friends all over the place, speaking at conferences. And here I have this mere mortal telling me that, you know, there's something <laughs> wrong with me. Hey, I am so glad that you are here. Thank you for discovering more with us today. My name is Benoit Kim, an abstract thinker turned psychotherapist. Today's conversation with two founders of Stem Cell Therapy Center will answer what exactly is bipolar disorder and what is it like to live with a mental illness under the broken healthcare system in America. Shelly Sood and Nikhil Tarskar are founders of Geostar Chicago, a stem cell therapy center and the Untether Your Life media company. Their mission statement is to leverage cutting-edge medical science and their incredible mental illness recovery journey to provide clinical breakthroughs and instill hope for those in seemingly hopeless circumstances. Expect to learn about bipolar disorder, the unspoken reality of living with mental illness, how emotional functioning and optimal performance is interconnected, the inspiring journey that saved Shelley and Nikhil's marriage, why the American healthcare system is so broken, and much more. Oh, by the way, if you enjoy the Discover More content, could you take 20 seconds and leave us a 5-star rating in wherever you listen to the podcast? It's free for you, but priceless for the show's growth. Before the episode, here is the sponsor of the week. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.fm. The perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. Cool.fm is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices, so you can multitask and listen to the music you like best. Available online at Cool.fm, that's K-E-W-L.fm, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.fm. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Shelly and Nikhil. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show. for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Shelly and Nikhil, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Benoit. Thanks so much for having us. A lot of the big shining topics on your podcast, Shelly and Nikhil, is the we need to disconnect and untether our worth from our education. Have you two actually noticed like a significant correlation 
between competency of your employees or the talent you come across with the level of schooling or the type of school they go to in terms of the prestige lens? So to answer the first part of your question, Benoit, I, I think this dovetails with what you and I were talking about on our podcast, which is being part of uh, the Asian American diaspora. There was just so much emphasis on the U.S. News and World Report ranking of the college you went to. That was like a proxy for your value, right? Growing up, it was always about getting the best SAT score, about going to the, you know, all having all the extracurriculars. And as we quickly found out, it's all BS, right? Because we have so many friends who went to the top schools. I mean, present company included. You know, I went to University of Chicago, Washington University, top schools, and I'm doing well now, I would say, but I don't attribute that in any way to my schooling. I mean, yes, I think I did pick up some tips and tricks here, and it's, it is about who you know these days. But really, this artificial value that I think a lot of our culture assigns to the pedigree that you have and, and in terms of you know where, where your diploma says you went to school, I think it's all BS. So I would say that it's good to push your kids and it's good to push yourself to get that achievement. But, you know, you shouldn't lose the forest for the trees and just chase after that top ranking, because at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's all about what you're contributing to society and what you're how you're able to make the world a better place. I know that sounds very cheesy and kumbaya, but it, it's really something that I feel. I echo that because I went to school at University of Pennsylvania. And aside from the resume building component, it's actually the rigorous peers and the intellectual mm -hmm. environment that I resonate with the most. Uh, because you're dealing with everyone that's at least on your level or above. I was average, at least with the class or the cohort I was in. And I was challenged for the first time. I was like, holy crap, this is why where you go to school matters, not just the name and the prestige, just the environment. And yep. I'm tying that into the bread and butter of both of your mission statements, untether mm -hmm. your life. So tying into what you said, Nikhil, about this artificial value that's been imposed by Asian cultural influences or just culture, what does untether your life mean to you both? And how can we untether and unlink our self-worth from any other artificial values out there, uh, not just prestige, but mental health, everything in between? So for me, untether your life really means a couple of things. First of all, finding your sole purpose and your mission in life. But, but how do we do that? The only way really to do that is to start looking within ourselves to start figuring out what makes us truly happy in this world, to push out the outside noise and the negative forces and the negative energy that come into our lives because that is just the way the world works. So, you know, I created myself this bubble a bubble of personal space that nobody pretty much can infiltrate or enter without my permission. And that to me is my sacred bubble where I'm able to go within myself, go well beyond my ego and start searching for my sole purpose of what I really want to do in this life. And I think one of the biggest components that people are missing is that, you know, in this world, everybody has trauma, whether it is from the day we were born, or it is later in childhood, or in our adult life, there is some trauma that is usually hidden and buried within ourselves. And so when we have our ego to really just protect all that trauma, it's an artificial block to really getting to the root of it. And so if we are not humble enough to really 
go within ourselves and untether our own life, then we are holding ourselves back from really our true purpose and mission in this world. And I think a lot of people nowadays are allergic to the term trauma. So as a therapist, I like to contextualize it as big T and small t. Small t is just the mundane things that are out of your control. Maybe you were bullied. Maybe you had X, Y, and Z. And big trauma is like the really big monumental situations that takes years to recover. But as you two who work in the stem cell research medical fields, we all know what trauma actually means physiologically. It's just a scar tissue. That's what, that's, that's it. That's what trauma is. So you apply that on a mental, emotional capacity. It's just something happened to you and you're healing from it. It's not a inheriting. There's no negative connotation to it. But I feel like it's important to contextualize what trauma means uh, physiologically and in the container of our current discussion. If I may, Benoit, if it's okay, I wanted to add a little bit to what Shelley was saying about what untethering your life means. And we rebranded the podcast, as you know, about two months ago. And I feel like that's given the podcast a big shot in the arm just because I think it's a topic that resonates with everybody because everybody is caught in this rat race. Everybody's caught in this template of what make quote unquote making it means, you know, big house, suburbs, kids in good colleges, et cetera. But they feel tethered to that. They feel like they're, you know, performing and just reading off of a script that was handed to them. So that's what our mission statement is, is just really to get people to have these types of conversations, you know, to expose themselves to new topics. Like, you know, we were talking about psychedelic therapy, for instance, and just at least, even if they don't do a 180 and completely have that eat, pray, love moment where they just completely have this awakening, it can at least point them in, in some new direction or at least at least get them to reassess and do an audit of, of how they're living their life. So how do you two think about owning your health? Because I'm very fascinated by people's tendency to uphold others in often very high and unrealistic expectations. Because a lot of times we can't own up to our own issues, our own triggers, our own trauma. So we inevitably rely on others to own it up for us. But you two are the perfect experts on owning your health. And can you tell me why you can't rely on other people? Doesn't matter how much they love you and care about you. It's our job, our sole responsibility to own up to our own health. It goes back to, you know, culture is such a big part of this because as you know, we are part of the South Asian diaspora and we come from a very collectivist society because a lot of our relatives, you know, when they came here, they didn't have much that I don't just mean materially, they didn't have a network of friends. And so people in the community who looked like them and talked like them, ate like them, you know, th that was in essence their family. And so there was this tendency to ascribe a little bit more value than really these connections merited, you know, and thinking about, you know, how will things look if we make this choice or if our kids acting up in school, you know, how does that reflect on us? And if maybe, and in my example, if our child has a mental illness, you know, how do we avoid messaging that and how do we keep that under wraps? It was more a matter of, I think, Shelley really looking to my family for support in terms of getting me uh, the help I needed, you know, because as we've talked about, you know, my father uh, was a psychiatrist. And so there was that blind faith and thinking that number one, just being my father, number two, being a mental health professional, 
that he would have my best interest at heart. And that turned out to not be the case at all. And again, it's not something that I, I have resentment towards him for. Everybody has limitations. But the fact of the matter is, Shelley did look to my family to provide support during an extreme bout of mania where, you know, I had lost probably like my fifth job in as many years, you know, put on tons of weight, just my financial situation. I was in complete dire straits and she tried to reach out to them and they did not respond uh, in the way that you would expect from family. So I bring that up because at the end of the day, I mean, I think that it's really important to have that strength, you know, strength of, of character and to really not care about what society thinks when you're fighting for a loved one. And that's really, you know, I'm fortunate that Shelly was there to step up for me and, and provide that support. And what I always say is not everybody has a Shelly in their life. Not everybody has that supportive spouse. So if they are faced with that kind of dilemma or that crisis, they should reach out to resources like NAMI, you know, National Alliance on Mental Illness, because it's not something that, uh, you know, the Grin and Barrett model is, is not effective at all. And quick add out to that before we go down to that train, since it is a big representations of both of your stories in terms of Shelley being the fisherwoman trying to fish Nikhil out of his inner demon, so to speak, in terms of the battling with uh, mental illnesses. Before that, I want to quickly contextualize mental illness and mental health. A lot of people associate mental illness equals to mental health or vice versa. Physical health is not cancer and tumor, but cancer and tumor are part of the physical health umbrella. Likewise, mental illness is not mental health, but it is a part of the mental health umbrella. So when we talk about anxiety, depression, seeking mental health therapy, it's not because you have mental illness which is very stigmatized and sounds scary, but it's still part of the umbrella and part of the conversations. But Shelly, I want to turn the mic back to you since Nikhil acknowledged and talked about the indisputable role that you played. Not force him, but how did you encourage him and maybe even challenged him through a love to face his inner demons, in this case, bipolar personality disorder? You know, I, I try to, to sound, surround myself with professionals in the field. First and foremost, I tried to, I made sure to gain the knowledge about the disorder, you know, that it was a disease, that this wasn't a kill, and that, you know, I needed to search within myself to find that person underneath all of this dysfunction. So that was first and foremost to get my own mindset straight. Um, building the knowledge, surrounding myself with the right healthcare professionals. But at the same time, even though I did all those things, I would still come across so many barriers because at the end of the day, none of the doctors really believed me. Family members didn't believe me. Uh, Nikhil had kind of reinvented himself. So he had a whole new set of friends. So nobody knew the old Nikhil that I knew. And so there was no basis of comparison. And, you know, as you must know, with bipolar disorder, most of the patients that go to actually seek any sort of help with psychiatrists or professionals is when they're in the depressive phase. And so a lot of times it gets misdiagnosed as bipolar depression. And when you give a antidepressant to a bipolar patient, you just lit a flame, you know, and they're going to probably go into a manic episode. So the nightmare continued and I had so much anxiety and knowing 
that this nightmare was going to continue if I did not convince or talk to the right people and give the right symptoms, not diagnose him because I'm not a clinician and I can't diagnose, but actually give a full 360 degree picture rather than the 180 degree picture that a lot of the therapists might get or a lot of the psychiatrists might get from him only. So, you know, I kind of took that responsibility of partially owning his health in that regard because he was incapacitated or not able to actually give the full picture. But really, at the end of the day, yes, I helped save his life, but really it was his conviction and his determination and mindset that made him achieve what he did, that made him help him heal. Nikhil, do you remember the moment where you had to, because it sounds like you didn't have a choice. This was you're already far past the point of no return, so to speak. Can you recall the visceral moments that you had to really pause and think and really receive Shelly's feedback? And I'm, I'm guessing her far cry for help because I'm sure I can't even imagine the underlying pain that both of you went through. Because a lot of times when you're in this manic state, you feel invincible. You're like, God, you feel more impulsive. A lot of people engage in promiscuous or like binge eating, binge shopping, yada, yada, yada. So there's a lot of a direct trauma and secondary trauma. But for you, Nikhil, as the main character of the story arc, can you recall that moment when you really had to like, holy crap, I need to do something about this? Yeah, absolutely. And it's attributed to Ernest Hemingway. And the question is, you know, how did you go broke gradually and then all at once? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how mental illness is. I mean, with bipolar disorder, because as you mentioned, uh, there was this grandiosity, there was this sense of invincibility. The analogy I always use is Bradley Cooper in Limitless, where basically, you know, I took this pill and it's like, the quote is like, I was blind, but now I can see. Learning new languages, I was making friends all over the place, speaking at conferences, and here I have this mere mortal telling me that, you know, there's something <laughs> wrong with me. You're the one who has the issue, you know? So it, it took a long time because again, I always say like I was looking through the looking glass and I had this funhouse mirror view of reality where, you know, I'm getting written up at work. I'm getting into arguments with people. But as they say, like, you know, chinks started to appear in the armor where, you know, I lost my job. My health kept declining credit card companies were calling me, you know, it's just like basically because I hadn't paid bills in, in months, I was getting kicked out of my apartment. And Shelly had been forging an alliance is what I called it with my parents to try to get them to get me to get help. And it, it just pissed me off because I felt like it was this big conspiracy against me. And one day she basically, you know, as I was talking to her, she kind of told me that the alliance had uh, frayed a little bit. They had basically said to her, you know, just stop barking up that tree. This guy is a lost cause. You know, he's a, the word he, my father, father used was he's a sociopath. He's an Academy Award winning actor. He's got you all fooled. I would just run, run for your life. That was when I'm like, okay, what I'm doing ain't working. This is not a recipe for success here. So I always equate it to the trust fall exercise that they have in a lot of corporate retreats, you know, where you're supposed to just fall back and the person behind you catches you. That's essentially what I did was it's just basically like, look, this person who was my sworn enemy that I've paid thousands of dollars to get out of my life, she's the only one in my corner. And so I had to just 
you know, like they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, turn myself over to a higher power. And that's essentially what I did. And I would just say that there is a lot of power in surrender because it's something that we tend to operate, especially in this capitalist society, we tend to operate in this do, do, do mode. And sometimes when you just surrender yourself, not to get too, you know, woo woo here, but to surrender yourself to the powers of the universe, it's amazing what can unfold. I mean, here we are seven and a half years later, working on stuff that I, you know, I never saw myself doing a podcast seven years ago or writing a book or launching a company, but yet here we are. So, but it took a bottoming out to your question. I mean, it, it took really just really getting the, the, the piss slapped out of me <laughs> before I came to that uh, epiphany. So Shelly, speaking of surrender, why didn't you surrender and run away? Because I knew who Nikhil really was. I knew deep down his true authentic self. And even if the world didn't believe me, even if his parents never saw it, even if, you know, his new friends saw a different Nikhil, I, I knew who he was. And so, you know, I, I really tried so hard to bring him back to the surface and it just wouldn't work every time I came across a new barrier. And that was the hardest thing to to deal with because, you know, Nikhil alluded to this. I was trying to control a situation that I really had no control over. I felt like, you know, the rug was pulled out from underneath me and I had lost control of the situation when he had filed for divorce and when he had left us and could not understand why he would do such a thing. So I held tighter and tighter onto the rope during our separation to try to control every aspect and every outcome to this whole process of his healing and transformation. And you just, you can't do it. And, and so, you know, the universe would show me one barrier after the other, whether it was a doctor who didn't believe me, whether it was, you know, the lawyers who said I'm totally off and, you know, created a legal nightmare for me and the children. I mean, every barrier was placed in front of me. And, and I learned a lot about that and the dysfunction of the word control. And, you know, it means something very different from everybody's perspective and everybody's life. But it is a very significant word that we try to control everything in our life. And, and that is the biggest error of mankind. What I talk about on the show a lot is we didn't even get to choose our birthright. None of us chose to be born. Our parents made the decisions for us based on the synchronistic encounter of their grandparents, the ancestors, based on time and space, and then we were born as a result. So if we didn't even choose our birthright, why would we even have any control over life, this greater force beyond us? But yeah, I want to zoom in on the words because control, surrender, these are just words. And a lot of people might have this misunderstanding that words are just words. Who cares? Why do we got to be precise? Why do we have to articulate? They're just words. And to that, I want to say scientifically, the documentations of the power of affirmations and words been documented 100,000 fold. Literally, if you look up YouTube talking about words of affirmations and water, the water molecules will actually change based on the level of affirmations you provide. And you can extend that to house plants, a bunch of other things. So if water molecule gets positively impacted by words, imagine human psychology and human physiology. Any thoughts there for you too in terms of the power of words 
and why we have to be intentional with what we say. Um, you know, for example, my father and his journey, uh, he was in the hospital for 30 days and he was suffering from aspiration pneumonia. And, you know, when I was present there and trying to help my mother, my mother was in the mode of she's a doctor herself. So she understood medicine and the ramifications of having aspiration pneumonia and, and what it could really do to him physically. So she was very much in her scientific mode of thought, which is understandable. But I came from a very different perspective. I came from a, OK, I understand some of the science, obviously not to the extent of my mother. You know, but I'll learn as much as I can from her to try to understand that side. But I came from a energy standpoint. I came from a it is so important for my father to have in, within himself this will to live. So if I can create an atmosphere and energy and surround him with those types of words, affirmations, you talk about affirmations, I created a customized meditation for him. So back in November, when I had seen him, um, I asked him, you know, Dad, what is your life purpose? What is your what is your journey? What do you want to do with the remaining time you have on this earth? And he walked me through this incredible journey. Um, I don't know if he knew my father was a surgeon. He was a doctor himself. And he told me, you know, ultimately he wants to go help the poor in India with medical treatments free of charge. And so that was what he had taught me in those moments of the importance of giving to human life without wanting or needing something in return. So I took that whole journey that he had described to me, you know, going through the mountains in Nepal and, you know, going through India and just having this full adventure and created a meditation for him and was insistent that every day, every night, that especially the times when I wasn't there, that this meditation was playing. So those affirmations were continuously going through his mind, even if he was in a, you know, delta phase or sleeping or whatever it may be. And he was receiving those ideas. And, you know, to this day, I, I really feel like it helped. It helped tremendously because after the 30 days that he was in the hospital, all the doctors said, it's gloom and doom, you know, and doctors would come in there and their know how and immediately have no regard or the family, or for what anyone was dealing with, and just make blanket statements that he's dead. That's it. There's no help. And even do this in front of the patient. And so every time I was there, I would tell the doctors or the nurses, you have anything to talk about, do it outside the ring. So I feel like people really don't understand that words can really penetrate to the person and the individual and create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want to make a weird connection and I want to see if it lands. But then I do want to go back to the pain teachers uh, with both of you two. But my brain just went somewhere where in terms of stem cell research, because I feel like the underlying thesis of what you said, Shelley, is sustainment of life versus the quality of life, right? And a lot of the medicine grapple with that debate timelessly is what's more important, sustaining your patient's life at what cost or prioritizing the quality of that person's life with the legacy they want to impart, especially with family presence and the memories because stories are not just stories. Stories are visceral re representative and reflections of the lived experiences. 
and the memory of your father will be long carried by both of you. But yeah, what do you think about that? And I know this is a, a scattered question, but can you tie that into the stem cell research? Because I know stem cell is the regenerative practice. And I feel like stem cell is what the medicine or the medical field banking on to really sustain one's life. So, so stem cells, you know, they can help um, alleviate a lot of symptoms of several degenerative types of conditions. And, and that includes lung disorders, that includes pneumonia, that includes, you know, all sorts of conditions. And what happens with our bodies, if I can just step back a little bit, is that, you know, when we are stressed out mentally and emotionally, we release high levels of cortisol. And the high levels of cortisol actually lead to a release of cytokine chemicals within our body. And cytokines chemicals are the basis of inflammation throughout the whole body. And so when this inflammation occurs, that is what leads to a lot of these degenerative conditions, whether it is arthritis, autoimmune diseases, neuropathy, you name it. And so when genetics plays a role, because genetics always plays somewhat of a role, a role in what diseases happen, it's also, you know, our stress management and how we alleviate that stress and our mental well-being that really ties in our mental health to our physical health. And so a lot of times we use stem cell therapy in that regard to help bring down that inflammation in the body that is caused by the cytokine storms. If I could add to that, I mean, I think that you make a great distinction there, Benoit, between sustaining life and having a good quality of life. And I think that, you know, not to go on a soapbox here, but that's really the crisis of our healthcare system is that it's more of a caretaker approach where it's just about you know, how long can we just prolong people's lives rather than really truly getting them healthy? The saying is, um, there's a pill for every ill, but then there's an ill after every pill. And it's if you think about that, that's what is so problematic about the pharmaceutical industry is just that, don't get me wrong, I mean, obviously, we do need these medications for a lot of these ailments. But there is this knee jerk reaction that a lot of doctors bless their souls, but a lot of them just sort of have this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, you're having uh, stomach issues. Let's put you on protonics. Or, oh, you know, you're, you're having your high blood pressure, Lacertin, whatever it is. And it, you know, as you know, I mean, this is not the panacea that a lot of these drug companies would have you believe. Uh, same with surgery. It's just that there's such, pardon the pun, but there is a knee-jerk reaction whenever there's some type of orthopedic disorder. Oh, let's do a knee replacement. Let's do a hip replacement. And they don't even care, you know, that the patient is going to have a, sometimes a lower quality of life afterwards because there's just years of reconstructive surgeries. There's all kinds of physical therapy. You know, we have a patient, I'm not going to say his name, but he was actually the former president of NBC Universal. He was uh, the guy behind uh, Must See TV in the 90s, you know, Seinfeld and Friends. And he had been one of our patients. And he had knee, knee surgery. He had knee replacement on one knee. Uh, so we couldn't do stem cells on that knee. But on the other knee, and I'm not kidding, Benoit, literally like he was back to playing tennis. He was kayaking. And it's just such a shame, you know, that this healthcare system, because of vested interests, that they don't embrace stem cell therapy more wholeheartedly. Because, again, drug companies, the, the saying is it's not about... Drug companies don't want to get people better. They want to sell people more drugs. 
And stem cell therapy kind of flies in the face of that because it's all natural. It's using your own internal healing capabilities. And there's, I mean, there is a way to commercialize it, but it flies in the face of the traditional, you know, assembly line model of, of the drug industry. So it's not health care. It's sick care. And that's the fundamental problem with our healthcare system. And, you know, living in that hospital basically for a month, I saw such a broken healthcare system. It, it was an absolute travesty, all the way from an, a lack of understanding of the mental component of what happens when a family member is this ill. Doctor is bombarding us for the fact that they need to have a consultation so they can bill Medicare. You know, just unnecessary noise you're surrounded by. But then at the same time, there's that balance. You also need that, right? You need the antibiotics to treat the pneumonia. You need, you know, the pulmonologist to come in and help guide you with regards to some of your options. But there is overall, you know, when a patient is in the ICU, a gloom and doom mentality. The other thing I really notice is there is no value, very little value for the patient themselves being able to voice what they want. So uh, I'll give you a prime example. My father, you know, his pneumonia was spreading pretty rapidly. He, he was pretty much still alert. Nobody really bothered to come to him and ask him, what do you want to do? Do you want to do the bronchoscopy? to put him under a vent temporarily with the hopes that he comes out, or does he want to not step back and not do anything? There was no respect and value for this human life and his opinion. And, and so I stopped everybody dead in their tracks. And I said, look, you know, and including my own family, I said, look, I'm going to go ask dad what he wants because he's not going in under this vent or, you know, we're not making that decision for him. And if he is alert enough to give us a clear indication of what he wants, then, you know, we've done the right thing and respected his belief system. So I did exactly that. He told me he wanted to go under the ventilator and, and do the bronchoscopy. Three days later, he came out of it, you know. And, and so I really saw an incredible human being here and a fighter who had such a tremendous will to live. He even came back. 30 days after the hospital and while he was in the hospital, almost died actually, and literally came back to life in front of our very eyes. And this is a whole other story, but I don't want to go on a total soapbox here. But the nurses had told me in that scene that he was in the dying phase and he was going to pass at any moment now, literally almost on his last breath. So go tell him exactly what you want to say to do your goodbyes. So instead of doing that, I don't know what possessed me to do this. I went up to him and I said, Dad, you're a fighter, aren't you? And a second later, he opens his eyes. His listless body was like this. He opens his eyes wide, raises his arm and said, yes, I'm a fighter. And literally snaps out of it in front of our very eyes. Power of affirmations and yeah. Power of affirmation and the power of the word is just so dismissed in the healthcare system. There has to be a balance between mental health and the power of the word, as well as the traditional medicine that we need out there. It, it cannot be one or the other. 
it, and it's sadly so. It it really is. It's just one dimensional. It's funny because my brain is going twelve different directions. I'll try to be cohesive. When people talk about holistic health, and of course Eastern medicine, which is where we're from, and then the Western medicine, because in terms of emergency medicine, the West is the best. They are the pinnacle of the medicine in terms of Western, like emergency medicine. And a lot of these Eastern practitioners or the so-called holistic practitioners, air quote, they're very allergic to Western medicines or pharmaceutical approach. But if you look at words, what does holistic mean? It means a wide-ranging, comprehensive list of everything. So holistic includes the alternative medicine, the Eastern medicine, the natural medicine, like STEM research, and medications and surgery. And that statement goes both ways. For people who only subscribe to the Western medicine, or only subscribe to the Eastern or the alternative medicine, and I think a lot of us underestimate the power or the inner intelligence of our body. The best analogy I've heard of is when you have a scar tissue or a cut on your arm, you put on a bandaid. The bandaid is not healing the wound. Your body is healing the wound. Like when you're pointing at the moon, don't focus on the finger. Look at the moon. And that's all I think about. And I feel like that relates mm. to stem cell and the natural innate restorative power the human body has. Because we still, like, I think this might be outdated. Someone has fact-checked me on this. But I think we know more about the stars and the galaxies within the observable uh, distance than our own brains. Just think about that. That, and of course, neuroscience, neurobiology is fairly new. It's only like 50 years, which is nothing in the scientific realm. But I just want to put this on a messaging board that whether it's holistic medicines or not, we need to always emphasize and think about the inner intelligence that our bodies innately have, because the ancient wisdom is within us. We just need to really cultivate a little bit further. When you go to your doctor's office, you're expecting this cold, sterile environment, uh, assembly line, just, I don't know if wham, bam, thank you, ma'am is appropriate here, <laughs> just given the connotations, <laughs> but a very like lickety split, like let's get you in and out the door. Whereas at Geostar, we definitely do focus on the patient experience because you're talking to someone who has a chronic condition, whether it's, you know, Crohn's disease or it's uh, a, a very severe knee injury or respiratory issues. You're, you're talking to someone who has a very and more than likely, they've gone down many other roads to try to take care of this ailment, whether it's COPD or something else. So they're in a very fragile state. They're in a state where this is their last hope. This is their Hail Mary. And it's really important to put them in a relaxed state where they feel at peace and they feel comfortable and they feel that they're in a place where people want them to succeed, where they want this... The, the outcome of this to be a successful one. And so I'm just bringing that up because to Shelly's point, I mean, I think that is something that needs to be stressed too, is just, it's not about getting the right medications. It's not about getting the right uh, surgeries or even with therapy. It's not about having the quote unquote right therapist. It's also about just the environment that you're surrounding yourself with. And this ties back to mental health, um, Benoit, because that, I think, was the, one of the most pivotal pieces of my recovery was the supportive environment that I had. Because, yes, the medication was there. I had ECT treatments. I had, you know, I was going to therapy regularly. But if I came back to a toxic environment where I was having to listen to 
you know, whether it's my mother or some auntie in the community talking about what a screw up I was, you think that recovery would have been successful? No. So I think that that's something that we need to highlight is just that human connection into the healing capabilities of our internal systems. According to the longest longitudinal research on happiness by Harvard uh, Medical School, uh, I just read that one of the two most contributing factors that influence happiness over lifespan, one is nutrition and sleep, which is health. And the second is the meaningful cultivated relationships. And I think what you just said, Nikhil, is highlighted of that, right? So I just want to put down a messaging board. And I think it's fitting to go back to the question that I tabled earlier about the pain teachers in terms of both of your journeys, because it's extremely intricate and interconnected. And without Shelly, that wouldn't be you, Nikhil. But without Nikhil, you showing up as authentic self that Shelly fell in love with, that wouldn't be Shelly. So I think it's, it's bi-directional. The saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I feel like applies to you both a little bit too well, to be honest. But this is a vast question and I would love for you to take where you feel cults to. What did the pain teacher teach you and or what did the pain teacher say that you two still carry to this day? You know, the pain teacher taught me so many different lessons. When I was younger, I was very much a pleaser. That, that was my personality. And, you know, I, I wanted to please my husband. I wanted to cook dinner for him every night. I wanted to be the best mother I could be. And, and that came with a set of societal rules of how we must behave, how we must raise our children, how I must cater to my husband's need. And so, you know, after this situation, everything that happened with me, I learned to stop looking at the outside world for answers. You know, stop looking for confirmation of what my actions were from others, you know, to, to determine whether it was right or wrong for myself and start trusting myself. I think too many people out there really are trusting the outside world, the media, the noise around us, social media to really determine their path or their journey or their actions. And, and I think that that is one of the biggest mistakes as well of mankind today is, is they're failing to really give themselves the belief and understanding that they know what's truly best for them. And, and so that was the biggest, one of the biggest things. And, you know, the other thing is, is really, you know, I learned a lot about energy, as I had alluded to earlier, and the impact of our words. And the impact of the energy that we surround ourselves with. You know, if we surround ourselves with negative people, with people that are bringing in an outside force of, you know, talking about others or gossiping or, or you know, whatever it may be, then that's exactly what we're going to receive from the world. It's a give and take type of relationship. So whatever I put out there is whatever I will receive. And also, I learned the power of my intuition, the power of, you know, using meditation to really step back and dive into gamma states of mind, alpha states of mind, theta, to really discover and answer, you know, at my crossroads, which way to go, to help make the decision and the termination of, you know, which way to go using my own intuition, not the voice of others. So many different lessons. and and. Also, you know, the way I run my business, I, I learned how to better manage people. 
and understand that everybody is coming from a different angle and different perspective. But at the end of the day, you know, we all have to step back and start trying to be more proactive in our response to things, whether instead of reactive to the outside world. So I learned to stop having knee-jerk reactions and to, you know, get angry at people and to take that three moments of breath and determine, well, is that coming from a place of fear? You know, if I have a knee-jerk reaction in less than three seconds, or is that coming from a place of intuition? So that has been a critical, critical milestone in my life and my growth and evolution, which if I hadn't gone through that entire experience with Nikhil, I, I don't think I would have really latched on to. And I would say to add to that, I would say what the pain teacher taught me was to just rip up the templates. And when I say that, I just mean that we have so much programming inherent in, in our bones and in our bodies is just that of what it means uh, to be a, a success and what it means to have it all. And what I found is just that a lot of those labels and a lot of the things that were, quote unquote, the right things to do is basically what almost, you know, put me in the grave, you know, about that work hard, play hard, uh, I'll sleep when I die mantra uh, that I think you and I had talked about on our podcast. It's just a recipe for disaster because at the end of the day, who are you pleasing? And that's just the programming that I grew up with. And again, this is not a judgment of anybody. This is not an indictment of my parents or our culture that, you know, that's just the way things are. The point that I'm realizing is that there's such a value in second chances. You know, I had a dream the other night. This was just one of the most vivid dreams I had where I was at a train station and I was just kind of ambling about, you know, just poking around on my iPhone. And then all of a sudden I looked up and the train had literally just left and my family was on that train, all my belongings, et cetera, et cetera. And I just realized that it was a wake up call because there have been so many things that have been plaguing my mind. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but you know, whether it's our book, it's our movie, it's our, you know, my podcast, all these things that are, that are occupying my brain right now. And I'm losing sight of the here and now, you know, and, and I'm losing sight of, you know, spending time with my kids or just giving them validation, et cetera. That is what the pain teacher taught me is that when I got caught up in all these accolades and achievements and all these markers of success, whether it be, you know, what was on my business card or my degree, the number of likes I got on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, that that's really what, again, nearly sunk me into a grave. So it was literally, I mean, we were at the 10 yard line there. We were literally about to sign the papers to make everything final. I need to think back to what that felt like and reassess whether that, you know, scrolling on my Instagram feed is, is really worth sacrificing that, you know, and it's not, <laughs> obviously the answer is no. And Nikhil, as you can know, I know you took a week or two break from social media due to the grief and the loss of both of your father we've been talking about. And as you saw, your engagement didn't really tank after the fact. I think one of my favorite quotes from Napoleon Hill, the author of Think and Grow Rich, is something along the line of, we often suffer more in our imaginations than reality. And it's, I think that quote is applicable to everything we talked about all these distractions externally that pulls away from the here and now. And that actually leads me to my next question because I've been a daily practitioner of mindfulness practices. I do 20 to 25 meditations every single day, seven days a week for the last four years. 
and it has saved me from my intrusive thoughts, which I thought was a competitive edge, which is the dumbest thing I've ever thought, which we talked about in the Kills podcast. So another wide question, but what does mindful living mean to you both? So mindful living to me means quieting the ego, you know, quieting the part of our brain that is in overdrive, the default mode network, you know, and, and that's constantly going. And that part of the brain really represents our ego on a whole. So when I become mindful, I have gone into present moment. I, I have a clear idea of where I wanted to go and where I wanted to want to be. And so that to me is, is the most tranquil time in my day is when I have that moments, those 30, 40 minutes or an hour of meditation or breath work. I would say breath work is, is huge for me as well. Benoit, you and I have talked about it, but I think uh, breathing is the most powerful biohack out there. It's just because we have this uh, incredibly complex system that you know we have so much control over that we give up because we get so swept up in all the pressures of the modern world, all the quote-unquote conveniences and all these quote-unquote collaboration tools that leave us uh, feeling more isolated than ever. So for me, mindful living means getting up every day and doing about 20 minutes of breath work, um, just focusing on there's this amazing methodology that I think I've talked to you about. It's called Soma Breath, which is just so amazingly powerful. And, you know, I, I, this is not a I'm not paid by the maker of this product or anything, but I do want to highlight that it's such a powerful thing that combines the power of breath work, but also um, music and a lot of Eastern philosophies that are so powerful uh, from, you know, the Gita, the Vedas, et cetera, and just overpowering and un insurmountable. I wouldn't say they vanish, but I feel more equipped and more grounded and better able to confront them. And I did want to mention that. Shelly and I actually did go to our son's uh, third grade class because he came home and he was telling us about Headspace, uh, the mental health app that I guess they're doing guided visualization in class. And so Shelly and I went in and we did a box breathing exercise where we simulated a conflict where Shelly grabs the b basketball away from me. In one scene, I'm huffing and puffing. And then I say to the kids, you know, has this happened to you? And then we go through a box breathing exercise. And again, I'm not saying like it's curing the problems overnight, but the kids actually did say afterwards that they felt a lot more calm and more at ease. And so what I always say is like, if we can get kids more receptive to this stuff now, and if we can take a more preventative approach, as they say, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we can get them thinking about mental health, you know, as an ongoing thing and a lifestyle rather than going through the Nikhil School of Mental Health, which is, you know, crash and burn, and then have to check yourself into a mental hospital. I mean, it's, I definitely think I, I would go with column A <laughs> in terms of the most effective approach uh, to managing these problems. Andrew Huberman, the Stanford neuroscientist, he has an amazing podcast. Yeah, he's, uh, he's brilliant. He just published a very comprehensive meta-analysis comparing the efficacy, which is effectiveness of breathwork, and meditation in terms of symptom reductions for anxiety. And the outcome just came out is breath work. Now, of course, four, four by four box breathing is like the most rudimentary basic, like beginners one-on-one, -on -one, which is a great place to start. But the level is deep for meditations and breath work. 
just like not all therapists are the same, not all doctors are the same. And so I, I want to say that because people have the tendency to very black and white, A or B, it's and. But according to that meta-analysis, it came down to that breath work is actually a lot more efficacious than meditation in terms of reducing anxiety. And what that just simply means is you're calming down your nervous system. So you're not in this FFF, flight, uh, fight or freeze mode. And you, you can actually recognize the self, your situations from a more bird's eye view. And that is a superpower. So I can't even imagine those third graders, if they were to perpetuate their practice over time, when they become my age 30 or your age down the road, imagine the level of clarity and the level of focus because TikTok and other technological front end has destroyed our attention span. My biggest competitive edge, not from a comparison standpoint against Gen Z is that my ability to prolong my focus to engage in in-depth conversations like this or being able to, to work in front of my laptop for six to eight hours with no interruptions. I'm not thinking about anything else. There's no destructive thoughts. There's no internal chatter. Like the radio analogy in the kill and I talked about per Mind Valley's analogies during our conversations. I'm just right now for this an hour plus of a time, I haven't had a single destructive thoughts. I'm 100% here in the now. And that ability has to be cultivated. I'm sure a lot of introverted folks with introversions, they have less chatters compared to like thinkers, feelers, spectrums, everyone's different. Same time, I really do feel like mindfulness practice is a superpower that ev everyone can cultivate, literally everyone, and it's free. 100%. And there was actually a study done by Dr. Jeff Tehran on breathwork and its impact on the brain. So he did a lot of studies and measured the EEGs and brain waves of what happens in the brain during this whole breathwork process. And they did a study with Selma Breath, as Nikhil had mentioned, that we love and follow on a daily basis. And it really talks about how, you know, the alpha, the alpha and theta waves are lowered, but at the same time during the breath work, the gamma waves are maintained. And gamma, as you know, is probably is the highest frequency of our minds. And so what happens in that default mode network, the part of our brain that controls our ego, that controls our sense of self and the sense of identity gets shut off during this breath work process. And, and so we're going beyond the ego into a deeper sense of the present moment and it can help anxiety. And so a lot of, they say, a lot of these mental illnesses like anxiety or depression and bipolar disorder are caused by um, a lot of times the default mode network is in absolute overdrive. So if we can control that network within our brains and activate, you know, our frontal lobes, which controls the executive functioning of our minds, we can help ADHD people, patients, we can help. It goes really across the board. And it's, it's an incredible study that I was truly fascinated by wanting to learn. Yeah, like the Maslow's hierarchy, right? Abram Maslow, uh, amazing psychologist. I know that his Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been disputed because the whole thing is actually a sign of privilege. A lot of his self exercisations, not just the pinnacle. Because I just had a conversation on the show with a cognitive psychologist, and she talks about the pinnacle of the triangle is self transcendence. And is that that's above self actualization? That's though? the highest. Hmm. It okay. came out towards the last 
few years of Abram's career slash lifespan. And I've been talking a lot of psychedelics in the podcast. That's like the chapters of life I'm in. So I'm not going to go into that. However, one of the few natural ways to achieve alternative or transpersonal psychological states, in this case, self-transcendence, is breathwork or sauna or fasting. A lot of these timeless practices that have been practiced by the East, indigenous cultures, etc. So of course, it's not as potent as psychedelics because that's like a rocket ship that forcibly puts you in that state. But like what Anikil and Shelley just talked about, the implications and the power of breathwork for the amount of minimum input it requires, the output is disproportionately large. It's a, literally a no-brainer. Like if I were to ask you, if you can partake in something that requires 2% of your effort, that directly and dramatically increase the 98% of your functionality and the quality of life, would you do it? You don't have to be mathematically inclined or quantitative. 2% and 98, that's very straightforward. Pretty good ROI there. Yeah, <laughs> great return on investment. <laughs> so I just want to put down the messaging board that whether it's mental health, physical health, emotional health, whatever container, it's all holistic health. And if you have these evidence-backed and also anecdotally documented toolkit that's free, why don't you want to at least try it out? If it doesn't work, cool, try something else. But we live in this era of information overload. And of course, that's a lot of distractions. At the same time, utilize the information and put that into application. Because I think application is power, not knowledge. And you made a good point, Benoit, is just that when we talk to a lot of people who are very mainstream medicine focused, and they always say, well, my doctor told me this or X, Y, Z. And, you know, with breath work, it gets poo-pooed and meditation, it just seems too woo-woo and out there. And what I always hear from people is, so where's, where are the clinical trials? Where are the studies? I mean, we, breath work, like Shelley was saying, the founder of Soma Breath, like their science is being studied by researchers at the University of Cambridge right now, you know, and, and this stuff is literally like, to your point, I mean, it can induce these states of mental transformation that you can't access unless you're taking like some really powerful drugs, you know? That's what I find like it's this hidden gem that I'm hoping more people will uh, will get on board with. I think there was this positioning of yoga as this, you know, military industrial complex of people who are getting together and contorting their bodies like pretzels. And, and that's what people don't realize is that is just part of yoga. But really, if you're doing, you know, the asanas, the poses without the breath work behind it, you're only getting part of the benefit. And so that's what I'm really excited about is that this focus on breath work and the focus on just, you know, really calming your body and your mind and decreasing the cortisol, that the scientific benefits are being brought to the fore. And again, through studies like Dr. Tarant, getting more out in the front, I think it's just, it's hopefully going to keep some of these forces at bay, like you talked about, like TikTok and everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess shout out to Beatles, because I know Beatles played an instrumental role in popularizing yoga and these mindfulness practice into the West. And of course, the West did not create these. And of course, the Western science is always decades behind these um, knowledges, ancient wisdom practiced literally culture-wide. And it doesn't matter what it is, it's been retained and kept in practice for thousands of years. It may not be 100% accurate because there's cognitive biases, blinders, lack of exposure, etc. for sure. 
at the same time, a thousand years is a long freaking time. If you really think about how long that is and you compound that for thousands of years, we know there is something there. And then the Western science has now caught up. And to your point, Nikhil, the evidence has been established for mindfulness, the efficacies of meditations. And of course, that's the whole ethos of discover more. I encourage people to do more discovering after the episode if you feel inspired. But all of these are scientifically backed. And of course, all three of us are very rigorous in that sense. And we're not here to spread misinformation. There's already plenty out there. So if I could also add to that, I talk about it on one of the podcasts. Um, I did an Instagram live with a gentleman named Shani. He's a breathwork coach. And he had another gentleman on there who was an ex Goldman Sachs banker. Uh, and now he is, I'm not sure what his exact title is, but you know, he covers the gamut of holistic healing, whether it's, you know, breath work, energy healing, chakras and stuff. And he, he made a very good point that a lot of Fortune 500 companies are embracing breath work and meditation. Because at the end of the day, like you said, all those benefits of leading to improved decision making, there's a financial impact to that. So, I mean, if you can, you know, spring for an hour of breath work, even if it's just once a week, and that's going to help your quarterly projections, why the hell not? You know, actually, Ray Dalio is a big believer in um, breathwork and meditation. So, and, and he's one of the top investment gurus out there, you know, so we'll see. I mean, I still have a lot of hope, I think, in the power of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I know LinkedIn and New York City branch, they offer mindful NYU. It's a mindful institution from NYU for free at their employees. And I don't really read the news, but they come up on my Google Chrome browser on my phone sometimes. And I just saw that Meta or Facebook just laid off a lot of uh, massage therapists due to their lack of profit margins, yada, yada, for their quarter, oh, yeah. whatever earnings. Cutting the perks and everything. Right, right, right. So trying that's to, that's Musk, unfortunate. Trying to Elon Muskify face Meta, right? Go slash and burn. Yeah, it's, but yeah. <laughs> the point is they still had like hundreds of massage therapists and other holistic health practitioners in this, not Fortune 500, but Fortune 50 companies. And if you know one thing about capitalism, they don't do anything that doesn't work. So sure, everything's profit-driven, but I think it still supports everything we've been talking about. So I want to ask you to the discover more staple question. What is an area in both of your domains or lives that you two feel inspired and called to discover more about after this very insightful, very vulnerable, since the loss and the death of your father just happened a few weeks ago from the time of this recording. Um, it's not like from six months, two years, four years ago. It's very, very recent. So whatever area you want to take this home to, but where do you want to discover more about after this conversation? I guess that's a great question. I would say that in terms of, this is not necessarily a question of what I want to discover more, but the depth that I want to go into. And because like, I'm just such a breathwork fanatic, really become a, do a subject matter expert in. And it's something that I would like to convey the power of breath work. Because I will say that, you know, it was such an emotional time being in the hospital where one of the things that we did was we had played a breath work video, a box breathing, a soma breath uh, session with Shelly's dad. And even though he was, you know, he was completely out of it, he was on a breathing tube, he was on a feeding tube. What was incredible was that when we would play these, the meditations, the guided breathwork meditations, 
we could actually see his toes start moving. We could actually see it's almost like it was, you know, pumping life into him. And when Shelly's dad came out of the hospital, as she was saying, it was almost like he was better than before in some ways. Not, you know, he still had a ways to go. But it's amazing because I hear pranayam being talked about as, as a buzzword, but Shelly's parents have been doing it for for years. You know, I remember back in, I think it was 2007 or so, they were going on like pranayam retreats and stuff. The amazing thing, Shelly's dad was more of the, what you would call like the mainstream yogi or version, you know, yoga div- devotee where he was amazing, even with Parkinson's disease, even in a compromised physical state, he was able to contort himself into all these asanas, all these poses. It was incredible, but he was not doing the breath work behind it. So he was really only getting limited benefit. But in the hospital, after he came back, they were doing daily breathwork sessions. You know, there's this amazing video of Shelly's dad and mom doing the, you know, breathing out, chanting Om and, and working on their breath. So, you know, the reason I'm at peace with what happened is I know that his spirit is living on and that I know that from beyond he has seen the benefits of breathwork and pranayam and our so much wisdom in our traditions that that is something that I would like to continue forward is just develop, you know, getting deeper and discovering more about breathwork to uh, spread it to the masses. I myself also want to further explore breathwork. I'm truly fascinated with the brain activity and how the brain works with regards to breathwork. And and I think when you give it some scientific efficacy behind what you're doing, instead of just telling everybody that this is great, it lends itself to more credibility. So I definitely am truly fascinated on that front, whether that means certification or that means further exploration. I, I'm definitely planning on doing that. I also, you know, have, I want to write my second book and Mikhail keeps telling me, well, make sure the first first book is published too. But (laughs) I have all of these thoughts and all these experiences in my mind with regards to what happened to my father. And a lot of it, you know, we alluded to, you know, I want to show the world what, you know, the pros and cons of the healthcare system and you know, the pros of traditional medicine, how the polio vaccine came about, how we need a lot of these vaccinations and immunizations. But at the same time, there has to be some sort of balance, you know, and holistic health, as you alluded to, is not just one dimensional. You're looking at the entire body as a whole, because I saw this traditional surgeon trained in traditional medicine with you know, I mean, the ego of a surgeon, of course, soft-hearted and kind-hearted inside, but the ego of a surgeon who was opening his mind and his heart to the mind-body connection and, and listening to me and trying the breath work and realizing the added benefits of the breath work. And I saw the visible improvements slowly but surely through him with, you know, even small little things where we would put a diaphragmatic beats on and, you know, he had a lot of difficulty taking from the spoon on the table in the bowl to his mouth to actually um, eat the food because he had a fear of aspiration. He had a fear of choking, of course. But when I put the music on, he got the rhythm and the beat started tapping 10 times over. So it was the power of the fear within him of the choking. And it was not necessarily the Parkinson's disease or the lack of inability to move. And so I think we don't look at things from a wider perspective and a holistic level. 
understanding the intricacies of the body and the mind and spirit and how it is really cohesively combined. Speaking of cohesive minds, this is a perfect full circle with us talking about Body Keeps the Score, which is the book you're reading right now, Shelley. And we're also closing this chapter of our conversations with Body Does Indeed Keep the Score. And everything and anything that happens to you, your body is the best accountant. And it will remember because every car has a mileage and the mileage runs out eventually and we're not cars or robots. With that being said, this is where I roll out the red carpet for you, Nikhil and Shelly. For those who are the seekers of curiosity, the seekers of mental health insights, for those independent thinkers that are tuning in week after week, if they're intrigued and they're curious about what else that you two have to offer about your company, Geostar, the multi-platform company of Untethered Your Life, where can people connect with you two further if they feel called to? Yeah, so there's a couple sites. Uh, the first one would be the Untether Your Life podcast is part of the broader platform, which is what we call the Shelley story. And so that would be encompassing the book, the movie, um, a lot of blog content that Shelley has put put out. Um, so that is just at uh, ShelleySued.com. So that's S-H-E-L-L-Y-S-O-O-D.com, ShelleySued.com. And then our podcast is Untether Your Life, as you mentioned. And so that is untetheryourlife.co. And then we also uh, obviously have the stem cell therapy company, which is uh, Geostar Chicago. So that is G-I-O-S-T-A-R Chicago, geostarchicago.com. And then we're also on all the uh, social networks, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Yeah, I appreciate you both of your times and the thoughtful responses to my questions and for all the insights and experiences you two have brought because I really believe that it's not always for ours to keep, but ours to share. And I feel like your second book, your first book, the movie, the blog, the podcast are just many ways and avenues for you to do that. Um, but yeah, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Benoit. This was great. Thank you so much. For all the listeners, if you have made it till this end, once again, I really appreciate you. I extend deep and deep gratitude. And I want to ask you to recommend this episode with one friend. That's how you encourage the platform to grow and for me to continue to fish out people with integrity, but also great insights to share more about their lives, their stories, and their pain teachers. Because often the most gratifying lessons come from the deepest pains if you're willing to move through that discomfort. And as always, I will include both of their information in the show notes below. And as always, thank you for listening and hope to see you again in the next week's train of Discover More. Thank you for tuning in.